welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. I'm really happy to be able to share this conversation with Andy Coe. He's an associate professor in the Information School at University of Washington. Um, and Andy wrote this great blog post in May called How I Sometimes Achieve Academic Work-Life Balance that received lots of attention. So this is the basis for our conversation here, and we explore lots of different perspectives about how he works at being structured and productive. The conversation ranges from his experiences being involved in a startup, um, learning planning skills from his mother, putting them to work even early days at college, and the need to adapt priorities when he was working in industry. And now that he's back in academia, he shares about his very deliberate practices around things like how he manages his PhD supervision and keeps track of things, um, co-writing papers, running meetings efficiently, quantifying time and tasks as, as, as a very deliberate practice, managing to-do lists, and, and so on. A common theme, I think, across all of these is that it's really clear that these are just skills and habits, but they need to be developed through a lot of repeated practice and discipline and self-awareness and reflection and being aware of what our own strengths are. So I hope you enjoy this and find lots to take away and, and try out. So, Andy, thank you for taking the time today to talk with me. Sure. And you're here by popular request because <laughs> you wrote, you published this really great blog article on May 3rd, 2017, titled um, How I Sometimes Achieve Academic Work-Life Balance. And that that got tweeted around quite a lot. And you know, some people who listened to the podcast said, oh, we'd love you to talk to him. So I'm really glad you agreed to to chat. Yeah, happy to be here. So do you want to just fill us in a little bit on your background? Yeah, sure. Um, So I am a tenure-track professor, um, tenured at the University of Washington at the Mm -hmm. Information School, and I've been there for about nine years. Um, Before that, I was a PhD student at Carnegie Mellon at the HCI Institute, and um, uh, worked a lot in thinking about people's interactions with code. So for a long time, I did work on developer tools and developer productivity mm-hmm. and thinking about new kinds of programming languages that were more useful and, and productive for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and lately have been really interested in thinking about learning perspectives in that space, um, both how novices learn um, programming languages and, and um, mm-hmm. software development more productively, but also experts too, right. right? All of the APIs that they learn, all of the new languages that they try to learn. So that's been my latest thing over the past few years is really applying a learning lens to all of those questions. Right. And that's post-tenure? That's, that's post-tenure, yeah. I actually I spent my sabbatical trying to uh, catch up on learning science. <laughs> and so reading everything I possibly could, mm-hmm. um, about that, getting all of the foundational theories mm. and filling in all of those gaps mm. that I wouldn't have learned being an HCI and software engineering researcher over the past 10 years before that. Yeah. And not ha- having time during your day job to of do course. the reading. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, doing that learning that we do as, mm. as um, scholars, right? We do the learning we have to do to get research done. Yeah. But yeah. we don't always have time for that, that deeper learning yeah. for new disciplines yeah. and, and bigger ideas. Sabbatical yeah. was amazing for that. So. 
So was that your first? I know we're starting in the middle. And so was that your first sabbatical as yeah. a faculty member? That was my first sabbatical. It was um, an oddly timed one, actually. It was, it was the one, the time that it was scheduled, about just after tenure. Mm. But I had taken two years' leave to start a startup, a software startup. With, oh. um, uh, what, before the sabbatical? Before the sabbatical. So about two years before I went up for tenure, mm. um, Jake Woolbrock and I both took leave and started a company with our uh, former PhD student, Parmeet Chalana, mm. and um, took two years full-time off. Um, still advisor students and managed our grants, but were very yeah. much uh, CEO and CTO of the startup for two years. Wow. Uh, that was a good stressor on my productivity skills, right? <laughs> Working 60 hours a week, um, yeah. building out a company and scaling yeah. a business while also managing all of my research yeah. responsibilities. So is that company still going? It is. It's called AnswerDash. Um, still uh, in downtown Seattle. We've got about 20 employees and lots of great customers. Um, and it's one of those really rare, um, clear trajectories from NSF funding all the way to um, a successful business. And so I wrote my career grant on this idea, had a PhD so you, student. Is, your career it. grant is something that you write here in the U.S. That's at right. the beginning of your tenure track process, It's, it's it? common in the first several years of a yeah. tenure track to uh, write a career proposal. And yeah. the NSF's goal with a career grant is to um, uh, support maybe a doctoral student and mm. travel and enough mm. money for about five years of a, mm -hmm. of a project. Um, that's part of a larger vision for all of the scholarship you might do over the next decade. So it's right. a great way to think about what do I want to work on yeah. for the next decade. Yeah. Um, and, and so that, that was actually really powerful because it funded one of my first PhD students, uh, led to a lot of the early work that I did mm. in my early tenure track, mm. and bootstrapped this business that we, that we built and raised venture capital for. So. So not many academics do that no. route of setting up a company. So talk me through that process, how that, that thinking <laughs> came about and then how the actions happened. Yeah, if you can call it a process. Yeah. A little, no, no, there's no, a little bit of chaos inside of that reconstruction. process. Um, so, so one of my motivations for doing it was um, I, I'd always studied software teams and software development and thought a lot about um, the work that software developers do. So one of my curiosities was... Um, do any of these ideas and theories and empirical results we have in that space uh, have any bearing on reality? So I mm. wanted to be in reality and right. see see those teams in practice and build one myself and try to apply a lot of that research to it. But um, you know, I'd also been part of the HCI community for a long time, and and a lot of people here wonder why are the inventions that we create not being picked up? Yeah. And what does that process look like? Yeah. And I also wanted to learn um, what the barriers were to mm. that too. And so. Mm. Um, Going and starting the business served a bunch of those curiosities, right? It helped me satisfy them. Uh, you know, and Jake, my co-founder, had different goals. He wanted a successful business, mm -hmm. right? And he'd yeah. been in startups before. And yeah. so um, both of us were looking at that for different reasons. Um, and so the process first had to do with resolving some of those um, conflicts of interest around uh, doing PhD-advised work and spinning it out as a business. We need, first needed to make sure that Parmeet was okay taking that intellectual yeah. property yeah. and um, and commercializing it. So we spent mm. a solid year, actually, working mm. through some of the complexities of did she want to finish her PhD? Did she want to be involved? If she didn't, would it be okay for us to go do it um, with her work, right, but have her go off and seek an academic um, position, which is what she ended up doing? Mm -hmm. um, 
So once we resolved that, then... And was this bringing in lawyers as well? Um, to an extent. We started with our university's yeah. um, tech transfer office, which yeah. is currently called CoMotion. And they did a great job connecting us with um, <coughs> excuse me, serial entrepreneurs who helped us understand uh, what might be necessary to start, mm-hmm. put us in touch with some of our first customers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the key thing was finding time. So uh, it just happened that Jake's sabbatical was um, at, at that exact time. So he proposed to do his sabbatical, uh, founding the business and helping um, seek funding for it. Yeah. And I, would, I uh, was moonlighting while um, he was on sabbatical. <laughs> So at the end of his sabbatical, we had successfully raised a couple of million dollars in venture capital. Wow. um, Once we had that, it meant building out the team and building out the product and figuring out uh, our go-to-market plan and, you know, other business buzzwords (laughs) that are relevant. That you didn't know before. That we didn't know before, (laughs) that I know intimately now. Um, and, and then spending two years on leave from the mm. university. And I have to say that the University of Washington was amazingly supportive. Mm. Um, as an example of, of the level of support, um, our faculty code says that you can't be on leave when you go up for tenure, right? And I was going to be on leave when I went up for tenure. Mm. And so um, the um, administration, in particular the president, had to make an exception to that faculty code rule to support this. And um, when that issue came up, they resolved it in a day or two and said, we want dissemination to happen. Impact matters. Go forth. Do the work. That's great. Yeah. Um, We'll see you when you're done. Come back. Yeah. So it's a great journey. Yeah. If you were doing it again, what, what what would you do differently? From the lessons learned of having done it that first time. Yeah. Well, um, from a from a commercial perspective, there's a question there about, you know, what what mistakes we think we made in those early commercialization days. Ironically, I think the biggest mistake we made was not doing enough user research. <laughs> Just terrible. Yeah, for two PhDs in HCI. I know. It's right? like the plumber with the leaking yeah. tap, isn't it? I mean, we had all of this great um, research from our lab about. Um, the the end user experience of, mm. of the idea. The product mm. itself is mm. um, a way of provisioning frequently asked questions on websites. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, in the product, when people click on the little tab we impose mm. on a web page, we um, have a bunch of data about context and frequently asked questions that we've crowdsourced so we know what questions an individual is likely to have. Mm-hmm. So they never even have to express their question. Um, and that part of the experience was amazing, right? End users loved it. They got their answers instantaneously. They didn't have to write support or call anybody on the phone. What we forgot was that um, our customers were also users and that we needed to understand their needs. Um, and as soon as we realized that um, that, that was fundamental, um, we had another barrier, which we had actually studied in our lab as well, and that is the scarcity of their time. Mm. Right? How do you get... Um, ahead of customer experience at a large enterprise company um, to listen to you from a marketing and sales perspective, first of all. Mm. And then second, if we just want to learn about their their needs, right, how do we motivate them to share those those challenges that they have so that we can understand how to position our, mm. our product and so on. So um, even once we realized we needed that, it was extremely difficult to get. And we had to, we had to sort of fly blind, right? And learn by selling and learn by um, engaging customers mm. that were motivated mm. and hoping that that small sample generalized mm. to the broader market that we were trying to yeah. sell to. Well, good on you. Yeah, that's a, a fun pretty, challenge. Pretty amazing. And what made you come back? Did you, 
Did you always plan to come back to academia? We did. Both of us did. We, we made a commitment to the university to only be gone for two years. Mm -hmm. And we made that same commitment to our, our investors and said, um, we're going to spend two years validating um, the product and kind of establishing product market fit. And then um, once we've done that, hand it off to more experienced executives to scale the business. And mm -hmm. so um, about six months before those two years were up, we started searching for a replacement CEO and CTO and successfully hired both. And, and they're both fantastic. And they're doing what we hoped and trying to make the business really yeah. grow as fast as possible. So what's your ongoing involvement then? Uh, so I'm currently the chief scientist, and um, what that means practically right now is that um, I do all of the boring intellectual property work that the company shouldn't waste its time on. So managing patents and writing the patents with lawyers, and then um, doing uh, strategic uh, conversations and research and development things uh, when it makes sense. And for any startup, that's not frequent, right? That's, you know, sit down quarterly and actually try to map out product roadmaps and think about other technologies that we might to bring to bear on the on the product. Mm -hmm. So it's not as frequent now, maybe a day a month, whereas before it was a full-time job, you know, 60 hours a week um, trying to build the business. So how do you reconcile you know, the 60 hours a week then in the blog <laughs> post? Is that the sometimes bit? Yeah, let's say that blog post I wrote did not apply. While I, was, I mean, all of the strategies that I talked about in yes. the blog post certainly applied, yeah. but it just wasn't feasible to mm. give what I needed um, and was ob obligated to give to the company and at the same time do justice to the commitments I'd made to my, my doctoral students. And at the time I had four doctoral students and three big NSF grants to manage and you know, I just couldn't possibly do that in, in a sensible number of hours mm. per week. So there were a lot of conversations that we had to have with our, our family and our kids about um, we're going to not be as available for the next couple of years and getting consent essentially from them that that was going to be a reasonable sacrifice and, and that it would pay off in some way. Not necessarily monetarily, but from our learning mm. too. So, um, so it, was, it was an explicit discussion and, and was. decision that it was okay, giving yourself permission to work those hours yeah. that were needed. I mean, speaking speaking in, for my own individual case, mm. just making sure that everybody in my family and, and my network knew that it was happening and, and that they were okay with it when they depended on me. Um, and, and then that just meant that to really um, satisfy all of those obligations and commitments that I'd made professionally and personally, that I really had to take those strategies and, and apply them as rigorously as I could um, because making all of that fit into my waking hours was an extreme challenge. Um, so I came back you know, on, on sabbatical once I was done and uh, felt a lot more talented <laughs> when it came to productivity than even I was before. Really? It was just, um, yeah, there was, there was no way to survive it other than just by being really ruthless about mm -hmm. protecting my time and using it wisely. So do you want to talk about that then? Yeah. Um, the productivity it, during that time um, or just in general? Yeah. The productivity during that time? Yeah, what especially if, Whatever you think is, is interesting to yeah, reflect yeah. on. Um, really, it came down to this fundamental idea that um, I had to invest my time. And if I took that almost economic model on what I did with my time, I, I, I had made commitments to lots of parties about how much time um, they would get from me. Right? It, it seemed sensible that my startup would get... Most of my time, that was my full-time job while I was on leave, um, and that 
my students deserved the same amount of time that I'd promised them when they first joined my lab and I first promised to advise them. So there was a chunk of time that I committed. Before the startup came on the scene. Right. Mm -hmm. And I had committed time to NSF, you know, when I wrote a budget and said, um, I'm going to spend, you know, one summer salary's worth of time on this, uh, along with all of the other academic year mm -hmm. time. So there was... There were commitments in place there, and, and so I, I took on that approach of just saying, um, this is how many hours each thing gets, and I'll do the most I can within that time to, um, to serve that mission, but I have to be able to context switch and mm. serve all of those different, mm. um, those different goals as well as I can. Were there some compromises you had to make that were difficult in order to fit the work into those times? Uh, yeah, some pretty, pretty severe ones, right? Yeah. So um, being a full-time CTO at a startup means wearing a lot of different hats and managing a lot of different kinds of people and being present. So I had to be present essentially from that you know, eight to six time period yeah. every day and, and be available and present and online and ready to make decisions and deal with crises. And, and so if that meant... Um, uh, meeting with my doctoral students in the evenings or, you know, just before dinner at 6 p.m. or going and taking a lunch and making the lunch break, the advising meeting at the same time. I had to find ways of, of doing that. And my students had to sacrifice for that too, mm. right? They had to um, be flexible to work around that same schedule. Um, and then, you know, I had to ask my executives in the company to be flexible too. So if I really needed to go and be at a thesis proposal at two in the afternoon, I was going to be gone for a couple yeah. of hours. And so those were, those were compromises that were just um, impossible to avoid. Mm. The other compromises were things like um, with all of the other uh, sort of unplanned things that come with research, right? Um, having to just explicitly decide that that was going to go slower um, than it would have normally, right? If we were racing towards the Kai deadline, and um, I just didn't have 20 hours in a week to give to getting that across the finish mm -hmm. line with a student. Um, it meant either saying to the student, you're going to have to do it without me, or I can only give you this. Mm -hmm. um, and in some ways, that actually helped with productivity. Right? Some, for, in some cases, for some students, um, having me step back was the right thing to do. And they actually grew because I was not as present. In other cases, it was the entirely wrong thing to right. do. <laughs> and I had to really be aware of when it was going to hurt something mm. and help something. And that actually grew me as a, an advisor too. I, I was think. just going to say that would make you reflect again when you are back right. working full-time, how right. much do you really need to do That's right. to, to support them? Yeah, and it, it kind of trained that part of my brain that was um, both more reflective about what I was giving but also more reflective about what students needed. Yeah. Um, and, and it forced me to re reflect on those things mm. and practice reflecting mm. on them in ways I don't think I had prior because um, there wasn't a cap on my time. Right. So if there was a paper to deadline, you just... The, the, just give all It, it give was all 20 the time, hours and right? you did it. Yeah. Whereas now it's, can they do it? That's right. Do they need your What's help? the thing that they need from me? And yeah. it's not so much about how much time they need from me, but what they need from me. And oh, that's interesting, that change of question. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, and the answer was sometimes a very short amount of time, but mm. the right insight. Mm. Um, and sometimes just a lot of very careful advising and mentoring on writing. And, yeah. and that, that might be a lot more time. Yeah. 
So do you have that as an explicit discussion with them as well? Do you say to them, you know, what do you need from me to get this paper written? Yeah, we talk a lot, a lot about that, and I probably talk about, a lot about that more than I had prior. Um, and and it, that has another interesting side effect of, I think, developing more self-awareness amongst the students themselves, right? Mm, so that, that they get better at recognizing what they're missing um, and, and what gaps there are. Mm. Um, and I think that that actually has other downstream effects, like once they can name and identify, or we can kind of collaboratively name what's missing, um, it's then easier to find out where they can get it. And because I'm more aware of what I can give, yes. it might not be me, and I can point them to yes. some other resource, yeah. another person, yeah. um, some other context for learning. Um, so I think that I've grown a lot on, in yeah. that regard, too. It's also nice the way that leaves that paper with them as the owner of it, right. and they're responsible for you know, saying what's needed, what support's needed to make yeah. it happen. That's also, also confounded by getting tenure, right? <laughs> uh, Pre-tenure, I needed those papers to get published. Oh, that's interesting. Post-tenure, I'd like for them to be published eventually. It's a slightly different um, thing, and, and I'm more interested in those papers being great and, and deeper if it takes another six months, mm -hmm. and then balancing that against um, students' own priorities around having an obscenely long CV and yeah. right yeah. Um, all of the other challenges that come yeah. with modern academic job searches. Mm. So. So what, what are some of the other pre-post-tenure um, differences that, in your experience? Yeah, well, uh, with respect to productivity especially, um, as I've learned to take on more, I've taken on more, and that's just forced me to acquire new skills for managing all of those, those different um, projects. And so um, another stressor was keeping track of, of um, people's state, right? So an advisee, uh, on, in terms of what they were working on and, and what I'd helped them with and what their goals were, I just mm -hmm. had to get better at actually capturing that because I wasn't going to remember it. It wasn't going to fit in my head. Um, so during, during the startup, right, I just got really good at um, being disciplined about capturing um, all of the information I needed to resume that conversation later. Um, and just taking five minutes after a meeting and just writing notes to myself about what I needed to remember for the next time that um, we were going to talk. And then actually doing things like budgeting into my calendar five minutes before a meeting with somebody, time to review it so that I could actually remember. And, and yeah, because there's no point having it written if no, you don't like it. No, not really. Yeah. It has to be utilized. Yeah. So, and, and it, so are you just using a Word doc or do you use a particular tool? Pretty low fidelity tools. So um, I, I use Apple's Notes application that's just yeah. built in and, yeah. and cloud synchronized. And then I just have a, a document for each of my students with essentially a log of every interaction that we've had um, with a few notes about, about progress and challenges. And, um, and it only takes a, a minute for me to just glance at that to remember that's yeah. right. You know, yeah. This is what they were struggling with. Yeah. This is what their goal was. Um, and you don't need to write long, fully formed no. sentences, I imagine. No. Not usually. Okay. Some, I think that all of us that advise doctoral students, sometimes there are those conversations that are actually really pivotal and really, really challenging. And sometimes I'll write more about those because mm. I, need to, I need to even just write to understand what happened, <laughs> mm. right? As a way for me mm. to reflect on that was an important, pivotal decision that they just mm. made. And I need to understand why they made it. And, and, and writing can mm. be a way for me to, to understand it for myself. Yeah. 
right? Yeah, that's nice. That's not just documenting, but it, it, the process of documenting engages you in that reflective that's process. Right. Exactly. So that, that's helped a lot too with just the, uh, the context switching. And that's also tied to things like having shorter meetings, right? If the student doesn't have to remind me what they were up to, <laughs> we can have that shorter meeting. And it's less redundant for them and for me. And, uh, and we use that time more, more wisely too. So do you, you, that, that suggests that you've shortened your meeting times. Yeah, I have. Um, there's something about a short meeting, like a 30-minute meeting, where... Everybody in a 30-minute meeting, this is students, but also staff and faculty and collaborators, everybody knows that in 30 minutes you can't accomplish a lot. Mm -hmm. So they really have to decide what they want to accomplish. Mm -hmm. It almost forces everybody to decide what the meeting is for in advance and have a really focused goal. Otherwise, not, they know nothing's going to happen. Um, a one-hour meeting, in contrast, is expansive enough yeah. that you can spend a good 20 minutes reminding yourselves of what you were talking yeah. about and deciding the purpose of the meeting and another 20 minutes yeah. moving through the content. I think we would all know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, so those 30-minute meetings, I, I think I even have fewer meetings because that forcing function of having to reflect on what the purpose of the meeting is usually occasionally resolves the need for it, right? So. Yeah. Sometimes an email thread will just turn into the meeting, and it turns out that the whole meeting was just about a decision that had to be made, and they'll just make it, yep. and then there's no meeting. So do you have a, a, an explicit process for setting up that, you know, what's the purpose of the meeting? And who I usually it? do scaffold it like that, yeah. And you know, I think that this is common in, in industry and business, uh, where they have more evolved notions of what meetings are, right? You scaffold things by just saying, to find the purpose, um, uh, oftentimes you won't require it, people to prep for it because you know they won't. And so instead you build something into that time that mm -hmm. is prep. So I'll often do things now like if I'm running the meeting, um, I'll prepare some physical document that has the knowledge that everybody needs mm -hmm. to make the decision or mm -hmm. have the conversation. And we spend five minutes silently reading it. And then everybody's on the same page and we decide it. And, and it turns out that this is, this is what a lot of... Um, companies do, like Amazon has this as a almost universal practice um, uh, inside of a lot of their meetings. Um, you come, you get some big you know, five-page document, people spend 20 minutes reading and then annotating and tearing it up and trying to understand the uh, nuances and flaws in it. That's, so that's good. Because, much more efficient use of time. Yeah, because if you send it out beforehand and half the people have read it and half haven't, right. and the half haven't are trying to read it during the meeting, but yeah. they're not really contributing to the discussion. That's right. It's just accepting reality of people's busy times right. and just, you know, yeah, now's the time we're dealing with this issue. Read. Yeah. I also love physical documents because mm. if you're holding something or you're holding a pen, you can't mm. be holding your smartphone. Oh, right. Yeah. So it, it nudges good. people towards engaging because very good. Um, yeah, because if it's online, I switch windows. <laughs> sure, and, you could be doing a lot of yeah. other things, trying to multitask, right? But physical things really force you to engage. Yeah. 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 So some of those tricks were mm. from industry. Some of them mm. were just things I developed because I had to. Um, and, and like I said in the blog, a lot of them were just. Um, Things that I learned in graduate school because my time was uh, stressed there too, mm. right? Because I had a commitments to my family that I wanted to um, uphold. So, um, 
and I will put a link to the blog on the on the web page. Um, were you also organised and disciplined before your baby came along? Probably and more just than got typical just, students. Okay, because yeah. I'm just wondering how much is your personality and your natural style anyway yeah. that became more refined and honed and yeah. and focused you know, by having a greater need because of having a kid. Yeah. Well, so so having spent a whole sabbatical last year reading deeply on on learning, you know, I attribute most learning to just lots of very good deliberate practice. Mm-hmm. And when I think about the deliberate practice I've received in being organized and disciplined, I attribute most of it actually to my mom. She was a fifth grade teacher, and like most teachers, um, your work doesn't stop when you leave school. You come home, you grade, and uh, so... So her practices for organizing her time were just visible all the time because oh, at yeah. home I yeah. watched her have to be organized yeah. because it meant coming home and uh, making dinner and doing other house chores and other types of things, but also having to grade and um, be organized about the paperwork that she had that she had to bring back to school and look at her um, her lessons plans and plan for the next day and be prepared for the next morning when a flood of 35 kids came into her room and she had seven hours of content to deliver. Um, you have to be prepared in a setting like that. And um, just by chance, um, her school district was about two weeks offset from the school district that my brother and I were in. So we often ended up being teacher's aides for two, two weeks before we'd go to school. Um, and so I'd not only see her doing the planning and preparation, but I'd see her execute it in mm, class and right. then participate in it. So um, I felt like you know, from fifth grade on when I started paying attention to what she was doing and participating, I just had this great mentor teacher helping me think about how to be organized. Yep. Um, That's a good foundation. Yeah. So more by osmosis and observation on osmosis. Oh, she would would definitely engage us. Okay. Yeah. Um, The teacher in her just couldn't help it, right? Um, Yeah. She she had two kids in her house, and she had all of this work to do, and if she could find a way to engage us and help her with it, <laughs> it made it easier for her yeah. and probably more interesting for us, and it occupied our attention, too. Mm. So she was just, uh, uh, she's just a natural teacher that constantly finds ways to mm. um, turn things into learning, um, and I think I benefited a lot from that mm. throughout my childhood. Mm. So that made college easier, which made grad school mm. easier, which made faculty life easier. So what were some of the things that you were doing anyway before you, know, before you got yeah. even more organized? Yeah. Um, I was really obsessive in at the end of high school and, and throughout college around um, to-do lists. Um, and in an ironic way, it's because I was so bad at remembering things, right? And it, that's what motivated me to actually... Mm-hmm be disciplined about capturing Mm -hmm. things because I knew I'd forget stuff and that caused problems. So the same thing with the students and the meetings. Yeah, Yeah. I knew the limitations of my memory and Mm -hmm. I knew that um, it just wasn't reliable enough. And so, you know, I I got got pretty obsessive about, you know, having my Palm Pilot and my little um, third-party to-do list application and sitting there at school and, like, using graffiti to enter all of my... (laughs) my to-do items and synchronizing it with my PC. And, mm-hmm. um, and so a lot of those to, to-do and task management things uh, started in high school and college because I was so bad at, at mm-hmm. remembering to do things. Um, and I watched my mom be so good at remembering all of, all of 
those things. And I learned those strategies from her. Mm. Right? She was the one mm. um, just religiously holding her, uh, her paper planner and copying her to-do list down every single day and updating it and crossing mm. things out. And do you um, still do that? I don't do it with paper, but I do, I do all of that yeah. um, uh, pretty, pretty uh, yeah. reliably. Yeah. And the tools are much better these days too, right? So the moment I remember I need to do something or I think of something I want to do, uh, capture is a lot easier, right? So um, I can say, hey, Siri, and my watch will wake up and whatever I say, it'll transcribe it, and that'll go to the cloud and end up in my inbox of tasks mm -hmm. that I can go and organize later. Mm -hmm. You do it while I'm driving, right? Um, I remember when my mom used to capture tasks while she was driving. She had this suction cup and paper notepad <laughs> hanging from the windshield. <laughs> and she'd kind of go to the right lane and stare at the road and <laughs> <laughs> oh, <nice>. <laughs> write <laughs> it on the paper. And, I was hoping um, you were going to say she's waiting till a red light. <laughs> <laughs> she mostly did, most of the time. Yeah, uh, she didn't so it's a little safer you're to do all, it now, you're too. You're all still alive. <laughs> yeah. um, so so that, that's helped a lot, and especially with um, faculty life, where we have so many different jobs, right? It's not just the multiple research projects, but the teaching responsibilities, and sometimes the multiple teaching responsibilities. Mm. My... Uh, my dean just asked me to be um, the program chair for our undergraduate program, so now I'm ultimately responsible for 500 undergraduates in our informatics degree. Wow. Right? So you look at my to-do list now, and you compare it from high school. High school had maybe five things a day on it. <laughs> yep. Now I look at this, um, I use OmniFocus, uh, and if you just look into the whole list of things that are in there, there's about 4,000 to-do items spanning three years, right, of things that... I'm either doing soon or doing in a year. But hopefully most of those 4,000 have been ticked off? No. No. These are the things that are to be done in oh, the future. Oh, really? Yeah. 4,000? Yeah. Well, it's things like, um, let's take my new administrator role, right? Um, I just started this quarter um, taking on this position, mm. right? So I'm learning about the cycle of the year. I'm learning about what happens in spring. Um, I'm learning that... Um, when we're planning admissions, it needs to start in January, mm -hmm. possibly earlier. So you know, last January, when I knew I was getting this position, I wrote down a to-do item that's reach out to the staff and set up the new admissions process, right, and make that a recurring thing. So one of those 4,000 things sitting in my to-do items is for January 2018, I'm going to have to repeat this process mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. I did again. And then there's things like um, NSF is terrible about sending reminders about annual reports deadlines. Sometimes they come, sometimes they don't. They have this big reminder on the website that says, don't rely on us reminding you that these are due. <laughs> so when I get a grant now, I just make all of the to-do items for all of the annual reports that will be due and when they're due so I don't forget to do them and hold up funding for other grants that come through. So um, it, it's the discipline around all of that future planning that um, mm is where most of those to-do items come from. I'm, I'm, you're making me feel really bad here. I just realized <laughs> that's something that I, I really need to do, something yeah. like that. And it's a micro-discipline in that it's, it's, you, you get the grant documents. Right. It's the two minutes that you need just to put it in, not it to put it in a pile and say you'll get to it later that you never do. No, it, it really is just yeah. something. It's almost like um, it, it's a little... Uh, disruptor in the normal flow of activities, mm. right? You get an email, 
the normal process of processing it is, you know, you go reply to it or something, and and maybe in that message you you say, okay, I'll take care of this, or I'll I'll write you again in a week, right? Um, it's something in my head that reminds me that I've just made a commitment, right? And because that little tiny commitment muscle is is practiced enough, every mm. time I remember that I'm doing that, yeah. I remember to capture too, um, and then then it's all there so that I don't forget. Um, and I'm just remembering this now, but. I had this uh, this great undergraduate professor. I was also a, a dual major in computer science mm-hmm. and psychology. Mm-hmm. So I had this psychology professor, and I took this class on learning and memory from him. And one of the areas of research he was really fascinated by was um, prospective memory. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. With this idea for memory for things in the future. future yeah. right? And he he was asking basic questions around, is it actually a form of memory? Is it actually some other kind of memory that's part of our long-term memory systems that just gets applied in some different way. So I remember spending this whole quarter thinking about memory for things in the future, and that was another chance to reflect on my practice, too, mm. almost in a theoretical way. Mm. So it's a lot of fun. Mm. So OmniFocus, you said, yeah. is the tool you use. Yeah. yeah, it's a pretty heavyweight tool. I mean, if you have a to-do list of 10 things, it's overkill. Um, if you've had 100 things, the nice thing about it is even when there are those 4,000 things on my list, because I've got metadata on things like when it's due and when I should start it and which project it's for, um, at any given time, the list that I'm looking at is maybe two or three things long. So I was going to ask you that. How, how do you, because if I just think I've got 4,000 yeah. sitting there, I just go, oh, yeah. I can't look at it. So you're not engaging with 4,000? No. No, because of that, that metadata around yeah. um, timing and deadlines, yeah. most of the time there's stuff that I'm doing today, mm-hmm. and that's, that, that's all I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. And then there's a little bit of a habit of, at the end of the day or at the end of the week, um, doing a little bit of work to plan the work that's going to happen next week. Mm-hmm. And so, so that when I do get to any given day, that list is possible to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. so I try to write down things like how long I think each of those tasks is going to take and um, just add up that time. And if it's more than those eight or nine hours in a day, you know, subtracting all of the meetings I might have in the day, I know I can't do it. And so I shift things off into the future or cancel commitments I've made or whatever else it needs I need to do in order to kind of but you but you that's I'd like that you actively right um, look at what you've got to do what it can fit into and what needs to happen right to make the fit work yeah and yeah and really the key is just having having data about that and the only way you do is with that uh, with enough discipline to capture it mm. right and I think it's hard to start doing that. I know that my students have tried to learn a lot about how I do things and build their own practices. Mm. Um, it's hard to begin those practices because it's really hard to judge at any given point in time when you're capturing things what the future value of it's going to be. And we're, I don't know about you, but I'm also notoriously bad at estimating how long That's something right. will take. Yeah, and, and that, that comes with time, right? Mm. Now I know that when I go and review a Kai paper, I can mm. I can do it in less than ninety minutes. Right? That's a pretty good chunk of time. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be more. It, it might mm. be less. Yeah. Um, but I know it's about that. Yeah. Um, uh, and it, you have to learn for all of those activities what those numbers are. Mm. Um, and then sometimes they're just complete guesses and, mm. yeah. <laughs> and way off. Yeah. And then you're readjusting the next exactly. day. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you also say in your blog post about how you set a quota. Yeah. For 
you know, um, how many papers you will review or how many, you know, reference letters you write or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that comes just from, uh, you know, both that, that startup experience where there was a lot of pressure on my time and I had to be um, rational about my commitments, but also just from, you know, people will talk about tenure-track positions as maybe half research and another 30% teaching and another 20% of service. We say those numbers, but then we ignore them entirely. We do. Um, and so I tried to not ignore them. Oh. You know, I tried to just be uh, committed to those numbers. And if I really was going to do 20% service, try to keep it to that. And actually respect the fact that somebody said my job was to only do that much yep. and spend the rest of my time doing those other things. And I guess if you've got, you know, if you say 20%, then you can say that's how many hours this is. Yeah. And then on the other hand, if you can say a review is 90 minutes, yeah. and if you've got some quantification of each of those tasks as a ballpark, yeah. Yeah, I can see how you can do that. Because I was going to ask you, how did you decide how many of things to yeah. do? Yeah, and there's other, other factors in that too. So mm -hmm. things like, <clears throat> from a reviewing perspective, I feel like there's a reciprocity principle that not all of us follow around um, I've submitted a Kai paper and I've mm. generated this much work I ought to at least do that much work mm. in a volunteer context mm. like we have so um, some years when we're submitting more papers than we do normally I'm going to exceed that quota because I've created that extra work um, and that's just going to be what it is. So you don't stick to it rigidly? No, no yeah. it's, it's more about um, drawing a line and trying mm. to stick to mm. it but there's not, there's not a consequence yeah. when I go past yeah. those lines, right? I mean, that's, that's what I've heard you say a few times, that you've got these really quite structured um, approaches to how you manage your time yeah. and what you do and how you do it, but you're also very flexible and responsive to the needs of the moment, or, and you don't, you don't seem to beat yourself up if you uh, go over or, you know, yeah. a time commitment. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I, th I think that that, that sort of... Um, paradox of, of being structured and, and flexible at the same time mm. um, that's just the nature of, of the work that we do mm. in a way mm. right as as researchers and, and scholars um, we have this great privilege of all of this this time in which to pursue our curiosity mm. and, and do things that are, are valuable to the world and mm. um, and yet there's not never enough time to do all of the things that we want to do and so we're constantly balancing you know, what we want to do and what we have time to do mm. and trying to fit things into the, the time that we have. And so there has to be that flexibility balancing out yeah. that structure because we don't have predictable paths that we yeah. follow in the work that yeah. we do. Um, the only thing I can predict is how much time I have. <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't, can't even predict. You just know. I mean, yeah. it's, 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 it's a finite it's a, resource. It's a given. Yeah. And so yeah. that's what's where I start. Mm. So any other ways that you make it work within, you know, a, a reasonable, what, what would it be, nine to five? Or what, what would be I, your day? I usually do like an eight to five or mm. sometimes an eight to six. Mm. Um, and, and it depends on if there are other activities in the day that are maybe not work related. Mm. Um, taking my daughter to school or something or mm. um, meeting up with friends. But typical days a nine hour a day mm -hmm. and and that number doesn't come from anywhere other than I know that's when I burn out mm. I'm not okay. useful after nine hours so what happens how do you experience that um, well my thinking isn't as clear 
Um, I f- start forgetting to do things, right? I sit and uh, stare at an email for way longer than I should <laughs> <laughs> to decide how to reply to it. Um, but there's a lot of uh, a lot of self-awareness around even just our own cognition that can be valuable for kind of prioritizing things, mm-hmm. right? And on any given day, if I have a big list of things to do, I try to do the things um, that are appropriate for my level of consciousness in some no, sense, right? So what can I handle right now? What's, yeah. what's, what's my brain up If to? I get in and I'm just not awake yet, I'm mm. just going to go through and press archive on a bunch of emails that I don't have to respond to, right? Um, but if I'm feeling just really energetic and alert and, and ready to think about hard problems and I've mm. got a big two-hour stretch of time, I'm going to go tackle that first page of that grant proposal that requires some really d- challenging thinking mm. and writing mm. um, and just orchestrate my time around um, around my, my energy. and mm. um, that, that helps a lot, too, just in terms of productivity because that means I'm using the time in the best way that I yeah. can. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any other things that you'd like to just talk about that we haven't mentioned because we're, as our time's drawing to close here? Yeah. Um, probably the most uh, common reaction or question I get having, since having posted that blog post is um, either I could never do what you do mm. or um, how do I get started? Mm. Right. Good questions. Um, I mean, the, the second one's a good question. The first one's like, <laughs> I, I, uh, there's some encouragement that has to happen for that first one, right? Yeah, to maybe get yeah. them there. I was talking that you know James Landay was, was nagging me on Facebook about <laughs> not believing me that this is what I do, and also just being probably frustrated that um, he he doesn't do that also. But I was chatting with him and. Um, I think we all have different uh, skills that we've developed over our lifetimes and different abilities to be self-aware and disciplined. And and I do believe that most of this is practice. I'm really not much of the um, sort of innate talent uh, You didn't have all your toes lined up in a row. No, but the the reality of it is that I have had a lot of practice at a lot of these things. Like I talked about my mother, I talked Mm. about school, I talked Mm. about you know, taking a whole class on prospective memory. Mm-hmm. And, and so there are things there that have allowed me to develop certain, a certain set of practices mm-hmm. that are uh, very structured and, and mature. And I think for anybody thinking about how to use their time more effectively, they just have to first think about um, what skills they already have and how to build upon them, nice. and how to yeah. build practices around them, yeah. right? Because it's not as if the things that I wrote in my blog post came fully formed yeah. all at once. I've yeah. built them very slowly and incrementally over time as I've learned new things. Yeah. So it's much more about a process of learning and being reflective about that process and less about borrowing a particular strategy or, mm. or that. I mean, I think that maybe the value of what was in the blog post is there are strategies you might try yes. right? and think about how they might integrate yeah. with the skills that, that you already have. Um, but but the, I think these are very personal processes yes. that are very tied to our ability to self-regulate yeah. and and discipline our our behavior, um, and those vary. And, and so. tied to your context as well, just Absolutely. as you, you showed, just in exactly that difference between how you handled your time during the startup and and right. what you're doing now. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think that that's all going to take us in different places. Mm. We'll have different mm. strategies and different processes, mm. and and that's perfectly fine. Um, I've gotten so interested in just thinking about my own practices um, that 
we've started to do some research on this too, right? Mm -hmm. Looking at um, software developers and what relationships self-regulation skills have to productive software engineering. And we had this uh, Kai paper um, uh, last year that, that looked at this explicitly and found that even teaching novice students just a little bit of self-regulation skills um, um, dramatically improved their productivity, their self-efficacy, their, yeah. even their growth mindset, their belief and their ability to learn other things changed yeah. because they were more aware of um, what they were doing, what strategies they were selecting, and whether they were effective. So mm. I think it's a very powerful set of skills that we often overlook. So um, what was the self-regulation skill that you taught in that context? Yeah, um, the scaffolding we gave them was um, when they were stuck, they could go ask a helper for help, a TA, mm -hmm. essentially, mm -hmm. um, in the summer camp that we ran. We had a control group and an experimental mm -hmm. group, and in the control group, we just helped them. Mm -hmm. And in the experimental group, before we helped them, we just said... Um, before I help you, um, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? And um, is it helping? Right? To prompt that yeah. self-reflection. Yes. Right? Yeah. And um, that intervention over the course of about three or four days got them in the habit of doing that themselves. Nice. And um, they stopped asking yeah. for help, asked those questions of themselves, yeah. and um, improved their strategy selections independently. And over the course of the next week, they just skyrocketed mm -hmm. while the control group became very dependent on the TAs and didn't know how to make progress yeah. independently, yeah. which slowed down all of their, yeah. their work. Um, so one of those really exciting contributions that was purely pedagogical, yeah. but an order of magnitude more effective than any developer tool I've ever invented. Yeah. <laughs> it, um, it, one of uh, my past PhD student, Peter Slovak, has been looking at social-emotional skills learning yeah. and, and you know, some of the self-regulation strategies. And it's... You know, such a tiny intervention, yeah. such a small thing, having such a big impact yeah. and showing that we can all learn. That's right. You know, we can all develop those skills. And that strategy also reflects what you're doing with your PhD students and writing papers. That's right. That's an ex you know, another example of that where you're saying back to them, what do you need from me? That's right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so I think I hear people waiting outside sure the door, thing. so we unfortunately need to finish. But uh, I will definitely put the blog article link on the web page, and if you have any other sort of hints that or things that you want to add you know, that we can put up there, let me know. Yeah. And thank you very much for your time. I've learned a lot from talking to you. I'm going to go away. I've learned a lot do by things sharing. Differently. Thank you for the conversation. Great. Thanks, Andy. Thanks. You can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and now also on Stitcher. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently.